We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friend at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to Hardline here on News Radio 930. WBEN, Joe Beamer with you, Brenda Alacy, hopefully joining us soon, still recovering from surgery, but we hope to have her back here very, very soon. Our guest this segment is Professor Jacob Nyheisel from UB. Professor, good morning. Morning, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. It's been a while, and I want to start with the obvious question uh, that you've you probably guessed I was going to ask this, but let's look at uh, the 100 days of Joe Biden and compare it to the 100 days of, you know, other recent presidents. Uh, where where do you see a lot of similarities and where is something that when we're looking at a 2020 midterm, a president who's now passed his first 100 days might want to focus on? That's a good question, and frankly, not the one I was anticipating. So <laughs> I, I, will, I will do the best that I can to fly here. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of similarities uh, between Biden and, and the past couple presidents. Um, and that's just uh, something that's a reality of kind of a polarized political world. Um, used to be you thought about the, the first 100 days as being this big agenda setting moment and, and, and still rhetorically how presidents like to pitch that. Um, but you just don't see, maybe with the exception of Obamacare back in, in 2008, you don't see a lot of uh, big initiatives actually making a lot of headway. And to the extent that they do, you know, they get watered down or compromised. And I think that's just the, the realities of a, a closely divided nation and a closely divided political system where, you know, you still have these institutions in place where the minority party has a lot of say still, particularly in the Senate. And we want to talk about that minority party. Um, you know, we talk about how polarizing the left versus right is. Well, what about within the party, Professor? You, you know, we keep seeing uh, Liz Cheney uh, talked about in a negative light. Mitt Romney booed as he's talking about how awful the Joe Biden economy is. Uh, you know, this is really a party that is starting to fight each other when they have a 2022 that historically, and I want to talk about that later, historically uh, goes to the minority party. Uh, do you think this infighting, um, is there something we can point back to another party? This infighting could not be the end of the Republican Party, but really help, uh, really hurt them in 2022. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And you know, I think that after a close loss, you often see kind of this, this time in the woods where the party, the losing party, tries to find its way. And one of the kind of natural impulses that, that seems to, to come around again and again is for them to double down. And so, you know, you see this here 
uh, with you know a, a large element of the party wanting to kind of you know find the, the the magic that Trump had again in terms of you know bringing people into the fold who were kind of this strange combination of conservative populists. Um, and I think that there are a number of people within the party who really see that as as the way forward. And you know if you're kind of an, an, an older generation of conservative where that's you know how you present yourself. That maybe isn't the way a lot of people in the party want to take things. And so this is kind of a natural time in the wilderness thing that, that parties tend to, to go through uh, after, a, after a loss. And what's, I think, more remarkable to me is that Democrats didn't do that in 2020. Um, you know, oftentimes you see these kinds of fights, and then you see somebody who really doubles down on, on you know, what the, they think the party stands for, and then they lose again, and they lose again, they lose again. And it really takes some time for them to kind of gravitate back toward – I don't want to say the political center, but you know, back toward where maybe the voters are, rather than where their their party base is. And so I think that's the the more remarkable story here. Um, you know, I think that it's to be expected that you're going to have these kind of internal fights. Um, it's just maybe not that usual that they're splayed out in front of public purview this way. Yeah, you know, I, I just I look at recent politics, right? You know, uh, in the 80s, it was the party of Reagan. The 90s, Democrats were the party of Clinton. Uh, 2000s, it was obviously the party of, uh, of President George Bush and, and uh, those in Congress. Uh, and then obviously the Democrat Party was the party of Obama. But it seems like in all those instances, it was a party of th- those parties. They took the policy of the person more than the person. And I'm looking at the Republican Party in 2021. Uh, I see a congresswoman who voted with President Trump more than almost any other person in Congress, and they want to kick her out. I, I mean, is this is this Republican Party just trying to be the party of the person Trump, or is it more after the policy? And is there any other time where a party was so tied to just one person more than the policy of that person? That's a really good point and, and something I probably should have brought up, that there does seem to be a personality-driven component to this that is – I don't want to go out on a limb and say it's you know, completely unheard of in American politics, but it's, it's certainly unusual. Um, as you said, it was, it was very much policy-driven in all these eras. And I'm even thinking back to the Great Depression where you see the Republicans uh, get you know, beat quite badly to FDR, and they really double down on the sort of anti-New Deal approach that they had. Um, you know, Hoover was still around, but he wasn't this, this kind of personality force that you see Trump being today. And, you know, looking back to, to losing parties across history, I think this is somewhat unique. Um, really, the only parallel that I can kind of think of will be someone like William Jennings Bryan, who ran three times unsuccessfully for, for the Democratic ticket or on the Democratic ticket. Um, you know, he had a little bit of that kind of personality going, given that he was a, a very um, – I guess, uh, you know, well-spoken guy, famous famous speech being the cross of gold speech. But that's really the only corollary I can think of right now. And and it is somewhat unusual in American politics. Yeah. And, you know, Professor, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to do too much commentary. It's just it's amazing to me that right now they want to replace the leader. uh, uh, Well, one of the leaders of the of the Republican Congress was someone who voted almost 20 percent less with Trump's policy than Liz Cheney. I, I, I've never seen anything of it, and uh, I, I'm glad that history backs me up. Yeah, I'm, I'm having, I'm sure a political historian will come and say, well, you know, back in 1830, <laughs> XYZ. Uh, but I, I'm really, particularly in the modern era, having trouble coming up with a, 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 a reasonable corollary to that. 
And it really is personality-driven, not policy-driven. And politics has always had a personality component to it, but I think this is to a greater extent than we have seen. You know, we look at 92, uh, and the Democrats put uh, Bill Clinton up. And Bill Clinton in in 92 was, you know, more of a moderate. I mean, you think of the Clinton presidency, it's more moderate than a president on either party would run now. Uh, That was the Democrats' answer to George Bush Sr. You know, we look at 2024, and I know I I still want to talk about 2022, but we look at 2024, I mean— History would show us that Republicans would have to try to go after independents and people who weren't happy with Biden is, you know, putting Trump up doesn't seem to be the answer. You want the Republican version of Bill Clinton, right? If you're talking about a 2024 campaign. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, it historically that has been the way, right? You lose, you need to moderate, you need to bring back independence to a certain extent. You know, I think that the Republicans are trying to, to thread the needle here, which is how do we keep this base that is very energetic, uh, that love Trump, that, you know, there's this peculiar blend of kind of right wing populist um, undertones to it, and then also win back independence. And I think that almost anything you do to win back independence is going to make that side perhaps less enthusiastic about turning out. And Republicans really need both to, 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 to win back in, in 2024. And looking at the 2022 midterms, now on average, the minority party will take so many seats. Has it ever happened uh, where that was projected and the minority party didn't take back either of the House? You know, I look at the Congress and the Senate, they're both very attainable for Republicans. But in my opinion, the infighting might become an issue by 2022. Has it ever happened before where a party got in their own way of something that was literally going to be handed to them? Oh, that's a great question. I, you know, I think the big macro factors tend to loom larger than the, the internal party fights. I, I'm having trouble coming up with an example of where the party got in their way in that respect, you know, the, the internal fights to such an extent that they, they really weren't, weren't able to um, come up with a, a reasonable um, alternative in a midterm. You know, you can come up with Democrats in 68 where the internal fights were so bad that, you know, I think that the, the Democratic candidate was kind of <laughs> it lost before the, the nomination was announced, really. Um, but during a midterm, history really uh, suggests that the, the um, out party, the, the minority party, tends to come roaring back. And, you know, there have been a handful of exceptions, two that I can think of in the modern era, but for the most part, um, that's that's really good times for for the minority party, and it tends to be a referendum on who's in the White House. So it's less about what that party is doing and more about what everybody's paying attention to, which is you know the person at the the top. You know, I can't think of anything to compare COVID nineteen to. Uh, but when we look at not only national elections coming up, but local elections, is there anything you can point to uh, that? You know, it was something that was faced that, you know, we had to, we had to face. It came out of nowhere. Um, and the politi- the sitting politicians might have to answer for that, even though it wasn't something they brought on, obviously. Uh, but, you know, I think of Governor Cuomo and his handling of COVID-19. Or if you're a Democrat, you're probably thinking in Florida of Ron DeSantis in his cover- uh, covering of uh, COVID-19. Has there been something in the past where politicians have maybe lost an election or had to answer when it came to campaign time something as big as COVID-19? I mean, I think at the the national level, the the closest I can think of would be the Great Depression and and Herbert Hoover. Um, You know, I don't know if he was terribly well-liked 
before the depression hit, but his policy response to it, um, which you know was was principled. Um, you know, he, he doubled down on you know government intervention is not the the thing we want to be doing. Uh, really, kind of to doomed his campaign and doomed the Republican Party for for a good while after that. Um, but at a more localized level. You know, politicians deal with natural disasters all the time, and uh, the conventional wisdom here is that unless they can use that as an opportunity to exercise leadership, right? They they showcase the abilities that they have, or they, you know, really go over and beyond. The voters tend to not look fondly on disasters, these kinds of things. Um, yeah, and the politicians who were in the office when they happened, regardless of whether or not it was their fault. So there's there's some evidence out there that. Things like uh, shark attacks actually tend to, to influence elections. Things like losses of the hometown sports teams tend to influence uh, an election to the incumbents. So voters uh, respond and not necessarily in the most rational way. Looking locally, we have a governor, Governor Cuomo, who has two investigations going on in the assembly now. You know, I'm looking at the polling and the polls are pretty consistent with he should stay in office, but I wouldn't vote for him in a fourth for a fourth term. Do you see any way that he could rebound those numbers before the gubernatorial election? Or would it not be smart with the way the polling goes? I, I believe, unless I'm wrong, that that number that he shouldn't run for a fourth term keeps on getting higher. Uh, is there any way for that poll to turn around uh, when it comes to Governor Cuomo? I mean, open a question, uh, but it really depends on what comes out of the, the investigations, so the twin investigations now. Um, I think there are a lot of folks uh, who are willing to, to forgive and forget unless there's some kind of bombshell that drops out of those investigations. You know, it's, uh, the realities of it on the ground are that it's a heavily democratic state. Those party identities play a big role in shaping how we understand the world, and they tend to kind of cloud our judgment around a lot of different things. You know, of course, there are times when people who are motivated reasoners kind of get it, and it becomes too much even for the the staunchest partisan to uh, continue to support the home team. But I think there are a number of people who are are willing to, to forgive and forget, I guess. We look at the census that came out a few weeks ago, and New York lost a congressional seat. And, you know, obviously here in the media, we made a big deal about that. Uh, But I can't remember uh, anyone losing because of losing a a seat or because of a low response census. Uh, So that probably wouldn't be something that faces Governor Cuomo in an election, correct? No, I wouldn't think so. And the narrative surrounding that is that the the state did what it could to to contact enough people and encourage enough in the way of participation in the census. So, you know, there's not a narrative I'm aware of out there that would say that, you know, somebody at a highest level of power really dropped the ball here. I I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of things that may have influenced uh, participation in the census. I don't think that government activity was one of them. And looking at the census, so we do lose that congressional seat. We're going to have to redistrict. Um, history would show us that it's going to redistrict to lose one conservative seat because of how Albany is situated in 2021. Yeah, that, that's looking increasingly like the case. And, you know, they've got to find <laughs> they've got to find that population somewhere. And I'm thinking it's probably going to be Western New York. It's almost certainly not going to be in the city. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure where they're they're looking to formulate a new seat, but I'm guessing they're probably going to, to pull two incumbents together and there's going to be you know, a contest between two people who might be you know, already sitting members if they're not look, reading the tea leaves and retiring before that happens. 
you know, it, it's so interesting looking at gerrymandering. Uh, was there ever a time where congressional districts looked normal or has gerrymandering been something uh, in the U.S. forever? Well, it, it's been around forever. So we call it gerrymandering. Uh, could be gerrymandering. Uh, the term originates with Elbridge Gerry, who drew uh, what was at the time described as a salamander-shaped district. And that would have been in the early 1800s. And so, uh, yeah, parties very, very rarely take a pass on the ability to, to exercise some kind of advantage or extract that from the institutional levers that they have at their disposal. So, no, it's, it's been with us for a very long time, and I think it will continue to be with us as long as the, the Supreme Court takes a pass on things like partisan gerrymandering. Uh, I've always said the, the one congressional district that makes sense, and I know I'm going to get the state wrong, it's either Wyoming or one of the Dakotas that only has one congressional seat. And I always say, well, that district looks right. <laughs> yeah, well, if you have an at-large district, yeah, that, that makes a fair amount of sense from a representation standpoint. But, uh, yeah, um, I, it seems I've always grown up in, in uh, gerrymandered districts. I grew up in Ohio 6, which takes out the entirety of the river of uh, the state of Ohio, uh, at least down to about Chillicothe area. So. Yeah, there there have been some creative ones created over time and lots of jokes about that. But I think that's just part of the reality until there's a political will at the state level to sit down and have an honest conversation about taking out of the hands of, of partisan politicians. It'll be interesting, Brian Higgins versus uh, Chris Jacobs, especially if, if, yeah. if they do it the way I think and you take Tom Reed's district, uh, that would be closer than I think people will give it credit for. Yeah, that would shape up to be a much more competitive district um, than than you know either currently has. Which of course, the districts as they're situated now for both 27 and 26 are were kind of a sweetheart deal. You know, they, they shored up Brian Higgins' district to be uh, more uh, reliably Democratic, and then of course seated the uh, the district Jacobs currently is in to, to the Republicans. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see when when that sweetheart deal ends. What happens? Now, uh, I got to ask you, in the world of COVID, Professor, I can't let you go without asking, how are, uh, how are things at UB uh, going with COVID? Have you gotten back to the classroom? Not yet, although I'm slated to be in the classroom in the fall, um, or at least halfway there. Uh, I have a large lecture class that's kind of questionable as to whether that will be in person uh, or if it can be done hybrid. But very, very excited. My, my Median American Politics class will be in person. So I will see students for the first time in over a year. <laughs> that is great. You know, move, moving back to normal. I'm. Uh, it cannot happen soon enough. I am ecstatic to get back in the classroom. I am. Other people may thrive in it. Other people may really like it. I personally am not a, a huge fan of online education. I, I really like the classroom environment. So I'm excited to get back. And UB got their new football coach. That's good. Uh, I, 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 I hope someone told Lance Leopold that, you know, going to Kansas is not, not going to a Power 5 school. It's kind of misleading. Well, you know, there are other reasons to move, I'm guessing. <laughs> they, they seem to have um, opened the coffers up for him a little bit more than, than I think uh, UB ever could. So, you know, best of luck to him. But, uh, yeah, you're right. It's it's not moving to the kind of program you'd want it to be, I suppose. No, no, it's not. Well, Professor, I, I'm so happy you were able to join us this morning, and uh, we will be talking again very soon. I can guarantee you that. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Professor. Professor Jacob Nyheisel, UB Assistant Professor of Political Science. When we come back, we're going to talk about the economy. We are going to play back an interview from earlier this week with Caleb Silver and also break down those job numbers Uh as you'll hear in Caleb Silver's report, he read them on the air with Susan and Brian, 
and he was a little shocked. So we're going to play that back. We're going to break that down, what that means for you here on Hardline. One segment left on WBEN. Welcome back. It is Hardline here. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Uh, News Radio 930 WBEN. Well, earlier this week, we had the jobs report uh, come down, and it wasn't uh, what we were expecting. It was not what the uh, those that follow the economy were expecting. And uh, we got to hear from Caleb Silver as he was seeing the numbers on air. Here is the interview with Caleb Silver from A New Morning with Brian Mazarowski and Susan Rose. This was from Friday. And Caleb Silver, like I said, he saw the numbers as he was talking with them. And then we'll break down those job numbers and just where the difference was. Here is Caleb Silver from Friday. Let's uh, check in this morning with Caleb Silver. He is editor-in-chief at Investopedia. Uh, We're all anxiously awaiting the April jobs report, which is coming out right now have you had a chance to to pick at this in the last few seconds caleb i am refreshing the department of labor's bls.gov site like a crazy man here those numbers are expected to drop any moment we're expecting at least a million jobs to have been added in the month um oh payroll employment rises by 266,000. that was not what we were expecting we were expecting a much bigger number only 266,000 jobs added according to the bureau of labor statistics we were expecting about a million the unemployment rate was little changed at 6.1 percent that was not what we were expecting earlier so this is a much softer report that tells you that the hiring was not as aggressive as we hoped it would be in the past month as the economy reopened i'm going to dig through the report here a little bit but that's nothing but a disappointing number at least at first glance so that's what i got for you at the top yeah caleb it's uh, disappointing if you're just looking at the number versus what might have been expected but at the same time i'm kind of hearing this and you can't be too surprised given all the reports over the past uh, couple of months on the trouble that many businesses, especially restaurants and other smaller businesses, are finding in hiring people. Yeah, you have this this push-pull where we know that the economies are reopening. We know that folks would like to get back to work, but companies say they can't find enough qualified workers. And whether that's in the high-scaled, high-trade industries or whether that's in you know the lower-skilled industries and the fast food and services part of the economy – Either they're not paying enough to get workers back to work, or they can't find enough good workers on the higher end in some of the uh, the other industries. So it is a it is a push pull there. The the fact that the the miss was so big though tells you that companies aren't ready to bring back their labor forces either because they don't see that demand, 
or they're worried that there's going to be some other incident that they're going to have to close down their businesses for a period of time. I think it's more the, the, the former. They're not totally convinced that demand is back, and we're going to have to see what happens there. But the, 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 the suffering in the economy and the labor department Department of the economy was in the services sector. That's hotels, that's restaurants, that's bars and salons. That's where we've seen the softness in the economy. Is that part of the that part is slow to come back? You know, Caleb. Uh, for a lot of workers who are sitting on the sidelines, you know, they aren't coming off because unemployment is giving them probably more than they would have gotten otherwise. When is that ending? That is ending for some at the end of August, according to the Biden administration's latest stimulus plan. So you have a little timetable where you know you're going to be able to collect that money until the end of the summer in some cases. And some folks are earning as much as 750 bucks a week in unemployment checks. So it's good money. It's you know, it's hard to convince them to come off of that when they can't get a job that pays them more than that or they don't see the path to a better career. And that's part of the, the issue with this recovery is that it's been uneven and it's been uneven for folks at the bottom who were the first to get laid off who are also the ones who are having the hardest time getting back into the labor market. Uh, futures were up before this news. What are you expecting the reaction to be on Wall Street? Well, they're plummeting right now. They were up. There. We were, the Dow was at record highs yesterday. So futures are, are starting to drop down as they feel that the economy is not as strong as, as many folks would have hoped. Of course, the economy and the stock market are separated. They've been separated and going different directions for the past year. But the, the latest surge in the stock market has really been around uh, industrials, has been around manufacturing companies, sort of the physical part of the stock market, not the technology stay-at-home stocks. So that might get a little bit softer, and we're starting to see Dow futures go negative as we head to the market open here in about an hour. Elon Musk is hosting Saturday Night Live. Um, what's going to happen to my Dogecoin? Is this good news? Oh, who could tell you? Dude, Elon Musk is one of the big champions of Dogecoin, which is that joke of a cryptocurrency started by developers in 2013, named after the Shinu Ubu dog. And you really can't do anything with it except trade it back and forth with your friends or buy souvenirs and pizza at a Dallas Mavericks game. I know that doesn't help you up in <laughs> Buffalo right now, but it probably will make that coin pop. But I wouldn't hold on to that for too long. That thing is hot to do. All right. Sounds good. Good advice. Thanks, Caleb. That's Caleb Silver joining us live as those uh, unemployment uh, numbers coming in and not exactly. I mean, you heard his reaction when he saw that. Yeah. Disappointing uh, number. Yeah. The uh, U.S. economy recovering uh, over 260,000 jobs in April. Uh, but economists were forecasting about a million jobs added. So this missing that mark big time. All right. And when asked about that... The president says this. President Biden was asked Friday whether an extra $300 a week in unemployment benefits has had an effect on Americans not wanting to return to work. No, nothing measurable. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce Friday called for an end to this assistance, saying it gives some recipients less incentive to look for work and is dampening what the business group says should be a, quote, stronger jobs market. Karen Travers, ABC News. Washington. And the GOP had an answer for that. Republicans and some small business leaders blaming the expanded unemployment benefits put in place through September, saying it's too hard to hire for some jobs. But Democrats argue there's no evidence of a worker shortage. Millions are looking for work. Karen Smith, a single mom from Jupiter, Florida, says she's only seeing job openings in the service industry. There aren't jobs out there for people with a lot of skill. There are service level jobs that are minimum wage. Most of them are part-time, so you don't have benefits. 
Republican governors and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce arguing specifically that the additional $300 a week in federal unemployment benefits uh, the Democrats put in place through September are keeping people from seeking work. So far, Democrats have completely balked at this idea. They say there just isn't data to back that up, that millions of Americans are out there looking for work. They argue that, if anything, this demonstrates a need for their policy proposals around paid family and medical leave and funding for child care and senior care. Mary Alice Parks, ABC News, the White House. You know, interesting. A lot of business owners, as the piece said, a lot of business owners are saying we need we can't stay open. I know of a restaurant that's a national chain, but I know one of the local uh, locations this week didn't open until four o'clock because they didn't have the, the, the employees to open their regular time. So they missed lunch rush because, again, this is my opinion, uh, you've got employees that, hey, I can get this extra 300 till September. Why would I go back to work? And uh, the president says, no, it's, it has nothing to do with the advanced unemployment until September. That's going until September, the extra $300 with your unemployment. Here are the president's remarks after that disappointing jobs report came in on Friday. Good afternoon. It's exactly 12. I want to, uh, I want to put today's jobs report in perspective. And uh, look, we came to office. We knew we were facing a once-in-a-century pandemic and a once-in-a-generation economic crisis. And we knew this wouldn't be a sprint. It'd be a marathon. Quite frankly, we're moving more rapidly than I thought we would. This morning, we learned that our economy created 266,000 jobs in April. It hadn't been adjusted again yet, but that's what it says, 266. And listening to commentators today, (laughs) as I was getting dressed, you might think that we should be disappointed. But when we passed the American Rescue Plan, I want to remind everybody, it was designed to help us over the course of a year not 60 days, a year. We never thought that after the first 50 or 60 days, everything would be fine. Today, there's more evidence that our economy is moving in the right direction. But it's clear we have a long way to go. All told, our economy has added more than 1,500,000 new jobs since I took office. That's the most number of jobs created in the first three months of any presidency in our history. Just for perspective, In these three months before I got here, the economy added about 60,000 jobs a month, not a half a million. In the three months since I've been here, the economy has added 500,000 jobs per month. And this is progress. And it's a testament to our new strategy of growing this economy from the bottom up and the middle out. And it's a clear testament to why it's so needed. Some critics said that we didn't need the American American Rescue Plan, that this economy would just uh, heal itself. Today's report just underscores, in my view, how vital the actions we're taking are. Checks to people who are hurting, support for small businesses, for child care and school reopening, support to help families put food on the table. Our efforts are starting to work, but the climb is steep and we still have a long way to go. Today's report also puts some some truth to some loose talk that uh, we've been hearing about the economy lately. First, 
that we should stop helping workers and families out for fear of overheating the economy. This report reinforces the real truth. For years, working people and middle-class people, the people who built this country, have been left out in the cold, struggling just to keep their heads above water. While those at the top have done very well, we're still digging out of an economic collapse that cost us 22 million jobs. Let me say that again. It cost us 22 million jobs. When we came in, we inherited a year of profound economic crisis and mismanagement on the virus. And we proposed uh, — and uh, what we propose is, is, is going to work. We're going to get to 70 percent. But, anyway, but look, it's also going to take focus, commitment, and uh, time to get the economy moving again, as we want it to move. We've got work to do. And, the, and the, uh, to state uh, the obvious, we have work to do. But look, let's keep our eye on the ball. That's why the American Rescue Plan is so important. I said we build it as a year-long effort to rescue our country. It's already working. Eight weeks later, we passed — it was after it was passed. But parts of the bill are still getting underway. Here's one example. I know uh, you all know this, but uh, it's worth repeating. State and local governments have to balance their budgets. As a consequence of this pandemic, revenues are way down in cities and states. State and local governments had to, have, had to lay off 1.6 million employees. That's an awful lot of firefighters, police officers, sanitation workers, essential workers. But later this month, we're going to be distributing the first tranche of the state and local assistance from the American Rescue Plan. We won't get all 1.6 million of those jobs back in one month, but you're going to start seeing those jobs and state and local workers coming back. Starting this month, we will also deliver assistance to tens of thousands — and as I notice every Republicans in our home state talking about this as being a good idea — tens of thousands of restaurants and bars across the country. And by the way, the majority of the jobs that have come back have been in the entertainment and in, 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 in those industries. In, in the, uh, and so, you know, we're going to help schools and children and child centers across the country as well accelerate reopening, and that's underway. So, look, this is going to, this is going to continue to improve. Today's report makes clear, thank goodness we passed the American Rescue Plan. Help is here, and more help is on the way, and more help is needed. Second, today's report is a rebuttal, the loose talk that Americans just don't want to work. I know some employers are having trouble filling jobs. But what this report shows is that there's a much bigger problem, notwithstanding the commentary you might have heard this morning. It is that our economy still has 8 million fewer jobs than when this pandemic started. The data shows that more, more workers — more workers are looking for jobs, and many can't find them. While jobs are coming back, there's still millions of people out there looking for work. And the idea that they don't want to work — most middle-class, working-class people that I know think the way my dad did. He used to say, and I know I'm repeating myself, but I'm going to continue to because I think it's critical. A job is a lot more than a paycheck, he'd say, Joey. It's about your respect, your dignity, your place in the community. More than a paycheck, 
It's people's pride. It's about being able to look your child in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay. I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten those folks I grew up with. I think about them every day as president. They didn't have a lot of money, but they busted their necks their whole lives to take care of their families. And all they ever wanted was a shot, a fair shot of making it. Last month, there were 266,000 more Americans with dignity that comes for the job. And there are millions, millions of Americans out there who, through no fault of their own, have been knocked flat on their back this past year. The virus stole their jobs. And I'm determined to give them a fighting chance. That's why I've been so focused on vaccinating the nation and getting our economy running again. That's why we fought so hard to pass the American Rescue Plan. And again, the American Rescue Plan was for the whole year. It plays out over a year, and it's working. But we can't let up. This jobs report makes that clear. We've got too much work to do. And the American Rescue Plan is just that, a rescue plan. It's to get us back to where we were. But that's not nearly enough. We have to build back better. That's why we need the American Jobs Plan, I propose, to put us in a position where we can build back better, to reclaim our position as the leading and most innovative nation in the world and win the future, the 21st century. We need to rebuild the nation's roads and highways and bridges and ports and airports. We've got water systems all over the country that need repair. There are over 400,000 schools and daycare centers with lead pipes that the, where the, the water goes through. 10 million homes. I saw a water project uh, system uh, yesterday in New Orleans that was over 80 years old. It's in need of major, major overhaul. And by the way, if they don't get it fixed, New Orleans itself is in real trouble. They need reliable, affordable, high-speed internet throughout this country. Our businesses need to compete worldwide. Our rural communities need to be able to compete and make their own judgments as to when to buy and sell. And our kids need to succeed in school. As my wife Jill says, any nation that out-educates us is going to out-compete us. We also need to up our game in our education system. Twelve years of education in, the 20, in 2021 is not enough to compete in the 21st century. In my view, we need 16 years of public education guaranteed. In this country, from preschool for three- and four-year-olds at the early end to two years of community college after high school, we have some serious decisions to make and fundamental choices. And think about it. How much better off is the country if we have tens of thousands of graduating seniors from high school and beyond going to get two years of community college? Doesn't that increase our capacity significantly? This month's job numbers show we're on the right track. We still have a long way to go. As I said, my laser focus is on growing the nation's economy and creating jobs. My laser focus is on vaccinating our nation, and we're making continued progress. My laser focus is on one more thing, making sure working people in this country, hardworking people, are no longer left out in the cold. They're going to get a share of the benefits of a rising economy. It's been a long time since that happened. I've called my plan 
the blue-collar blueprint for America. That's exactly what it is. So let's not let up. We're still digging our way out of a very deep hole we were put in. No one should underestimate how tough this battle is. We still have a job to do here in Washington. The American people are counting on us. So let's get it done. Let's build an economy that delivers dignity and gives everybody a chance. I'm confident we can do this because there's nothing beyond the capacity of the American people. I want to thank you. God bless you. And may God protect our troops. Thank that is President Joe Biden on Friday after the disappointing job numbers. Before we get out of here, Brenda would like to say hi to everyone. She is working through a fair amount of pain, but working hard in PT. Hello to all the listeners, especially all the moms. Hopefully, Brenda will be back here very soon. I would also like to say happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, especially my mom. Mom, happy Mother's Day, and thank you for still being there for me at 32, even after all the disappointment. It is Hardline. We'll be back here tomorrow starting at 5 with a new morning with Susan Rose and Brian Mazarowski. Bmaz and Beamer, 9 to 10. David Bellavia, 10 to 2. Tom Bowerly, 2 to 6. And... All the news you need to know in one hour. Buffalo's Evening News, 6 to 7 with Tom Puckett. Have a great day. Have a great Mother's Day. We'll see you tomorrow here on WBEN.